Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 200. Can you believe it? 200. That's right. Hundreds of interviews. That's pretty cool. Thank you so much for your support that makes it possible, that keeps it going, keeps me motivated and inspired and, and rocking and rolling. So here's to the next 200. So today we are chatting with Anthony Chan and Tony is talking to us about goodness, which is an interesting perspective from a venture capitalist. You might think of greed is good, but we'll learn just the opposite. Specifically, one, the benefits of cultivating goodness. Two, how to discern someone's character and values up front. And three, approaches to check yourself on the cultivation of your character and values. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items referenced here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep200. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of our handy resources. One that I dig is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. That is simply a compilation of the most bite-sized, actionable tidbits, segments from my Enhanced Thinking Collaboration training programs that have shown to get about an 86-minute reduction in wasted time per person per week. And so we've packaged that up into some bite-sized bits over a 10-days email course. So that's there or at awesomeatyourjob.com. And now here is Anthony's story. Anthony Chan has been at the forefront of transformational change across organizations he has either built or advised, as well as strategic counselor to several leaders and public personalities. He's a New York Times bestselling author and serves as CEO of the Q-Ball Group, a people-first venture investment fund. Tony is also the co-founder and chairman of Mini Lux, a retail services brand looking to revolutionize the nail salon industry. Here's Tony. Tony, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. I'm glad to be on. Well, we're glad to have you. And speaking of great guests and hosting them, I noticed in your Twitter feed that you recently hosted Isaac Lidsky, whom we had earlier. Amazing, amazing, inspiring guy back in episode 142 at your On Cue event. Tell me, what's that event and how did Isaac do? Yeah, well, Isaac is awesome. And uh, what we try to do each year um, at a gathering, a private gathering called On Cue, is a little bit of a mix of a TED-like gathering, uh, meeting a little bit of uh, Burning Man and, and uh, artistic <laughs> festival. Okay. But there's about 250 best and brightest we invite. It's not, not a conference. No one pays. We don't pay people to come. And Isaac, as you know, who was uh, your guest, episode 142, you know, spoke on that theme as only he can do so well around what is the reality that you create for yourself. And uh, as uh, your guests may remember, here is someone who uh, highly educated, you know, coming out of uh, Harvard College, I believe Harvard Law School, um, was a television star and uh, a very, very successful entrepreneur of his own business. But due to a rare disease, lost his sight. And I think it was really uh, the reason I, I had him as part of our set of speakers is that we really wanted to talk about truth and wisdom. 
And I think he was just perfect at saying, you know, that the perceptions and uh, realities we have are self-created in many ways. And look at what he's done um, to uh, break those misperceptions and have success in many different ways. And in, in some ways, the blindness served to be a catalyst for him to see and understand his full potential. So I think it was um, just a great set of profound lessons on how people deal with adversity, um, with grit, inspiration, and how they can reflect that onto other people. Oh, absolutely. He's certainly a force of inspiration there. And I remember he asked the question, what do I really know about going blind? And that has just struck me so often in terms of you know, and his answer was, well, nothing, <laughs> you know, I've never <laughs> gone blind before. And so yeah. I just made all these assumptions. And so likewise, whenever I enter a new territory, I just check myself. It's like, well, what do I really know about hiring an electrician? We just bought a home. So it's like, well, right. nothing. And so and then it's been quite eye opening to see like, well, what do I just sort of, you know, close my mind around or just assume as true before I really you know, tested it out and dug in a bit. So that's been eye-opening and encouraging when I'm in new territories. And so it sounds like a really cool event. And as well as your company, give us the quick background there. The Q-Ball Group, what are you all about? Well, Q-Ball is a holding company and venture firm that is really trying to change the model for uh, venture capital. I have been uh, privileged to be part of a few entrepreneurial and business building experiences which have been um, part of some transformations in industry, including commercialization of internet. And my partner led the largest information media transformation in history, which was the um, turnaround and transformation of Thomson, a newspaper company to Thomson Reuters. Q-Ball Group is trying to take some of those lessons and look at all sorts of, of businesses and really get back to the very basics of what it means to uh, build great businesses that will last. And so with respect to having a new model for venture capital, there's some unique dimensions that we try to put forth. One is putting forth a philosophy that more important than any other principle in business, and I would argue in life, and what I write about in my latest book, Good People, it is all about having a people first philosophy and being around good people. And second is understanding that, you know, great things take a long time. Um, our fund is very unique in that we are trying to be a Berkshire Hathaway of venture capital, meaning that we have no fixed time frame on the investments we make. So we enter businesses to enter them. We don't think about exit strategies day one. We really think about, are these things that we'd want to, you know, partner with and, and hold on to um, forever. Forever, I like it. That's cool. And so when it comes to people, you've got a book entitled Good People, The Only Leadership Decision That Really Matters. And so can you kind of give us, you know, what's the big idea behind this book? Yeah, the big idea is that, you know, we all use that phrase, good people. Um, what does it mean to be a good person, you know, is a question, though, that we rarely ask ourselves. It's one of the most used terms that we know we want to be good and we want to be around good people. So the idea behind the book was really put forth a clear definition of what it means to be good, understand why it's hard to be good, and then um, discuss what can you actually do about it. The underlying premise for many people of what goodness really means, it, it is about goodness of competency. 
But I would argue for many of your listeners and audience out there that the most important goodness is goodness of character and values. And that's what we discuss mostly in the book. Okay. So character and values. So you're saying, I'm hearing that there's kind of multiple types of goodness or within the categorization that you're using, you're primarily talking about goodness and values and not so much competency. Yeah. It's not that competency isn't important. I think for all the people out there who are at a variety of their jobs, you know, I, I don't want to convey at all that there are great skills and competencies and smarts and thinking aren't important for them to continue to advance in their um, career, whether they're a freelancer or uh, having a a career in, you know, whatever company they may be in. Um, But what we have done in most companies and business schools have been very long on teaching goodness of competency, but relatively short on trying to educate and cultivate goodness of character and values. And it's my belief that that really is the most important thing, not just from some, you know, hairy, fairy, high level CEO seat, but really um, for understanding how you can develop the best inner version of yourself, the highest expression of yourself, and as important, help those um, around you and ultimately advance to the um, highest levels of your potential. Okay. Well, that sounds exciting to me. And so I'm intrigued though, you know, so venture capital is a place where maybe we, we don't think about that so much. And I guess I'm thinking about the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko. you know, greed is good or, or cash is king. And, you know, it's called a bottom line for a reason, et cetera. So well, I like the feel good stuff. Could you make the data driven case for us about, you know, goodness as it relates to economic value? Yeah. So You know, we looked at up to 100 cases of uh, businesses and leaders out there. um, And what we found was that the businesses that first and foremost have true lasting value are really in the business of value creation, not just value capture, were those that really had a strong sense of values. And secondly, we found out that there's no doubt a very high correlation between that and um, shareholder appreciation. Um, At a very practical level for, you know, listeners, companies that have real goodness are the ones that actually engender the strongest cultures. And why does that matter? Well, it's shocking to me that in this country, Currently, that 67 to 70 percent of employees are either disengaged, meaning that they're relatively indifferent or they are actively seeking to leave their jobs. So over two thirds of the employee base today is basically indifferent or unhappy Mm -hmm. at their workplace. And, you know, what we found is that places that had a very strong sense of values and character had the opposite. So a great case example uh, that I opened my book with is that out there in um, in California near La Jolla in San Diego, there's a company that makes um, a fairly well-known household product in blue and yellow cans called WD-40. Mm-hmm. And WD-40 has always had that philosophy run by Gary Ridge over a very long period of time, you know, don't just mark my paper, help me get an A. And, um, you know, that philosophy that he has infused in his company has led to 98% of the people wanting to recommend it as a place to work. 99% of people saying that they love working there. 
some of the highest retention rates in the country, highest engagement levels, not to mention, you know, decades of just shareholder and stockholder appreciation of, of value. And, you know, I think that's just something important for us all to remember. You may or may not be out there with direct reports today, and you may or may not have a relationship, you know, in your organization with a boss that you feel like you have a connection with. But I think we're all in a position to either actively seek those people that can help us elevate to a higher expression of who we are and what we want to do, or no matter what level we are in our organizations to help others feel that fullest version of who they are. And that really is the biggest lesson that you've seen from these companies. They're not about organizations that are about having a leader that creates followers. They're organizations that systematically create leaders who produce other leaders. And I mean that across all levels of the organization. Oh, that's so cool and striking. Well, how big is the WD-40 corporation or the parent company there? 98%. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. So WD-40, um, has, I think it's worth about 1.5 billion. Annual sales are about 350, $400 million. And, you know, like I said, that they retain staff at three times the national average and, you know, people are excited to work there and that's a billion five company. Well, that's amazing. But that's like, this isn't just 50 people and 49 of them love it, but no. it's of scale yeah. and people are data. So that's so cool. And the product isn't, you know, super innovative. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's been around for a while, but I guess I'm sure they probably have some other things going on. But that is a striking example how here is sort of just a household item that is the culture is such that folks are fired up and good to go. Not so much because of the amazing Silicon Valley style innovation of the cool new thing, but just of something else that's sort of deep and fundamental about, you know, how they're relating to one another. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's cool. And what you find there, you know, are some of the things that you end up speaking about a lot on your program. I mean, you know, people feel more present every single day. They, you know, when we say they're engaged, they come in with a a sense of purpose. I've always said that, you know, what ultimately drives people to stay at a place of work is not so much the extrinsic rewards, not the title, not the money, but the intrinsic reward of sensing that they have a meaningful role. And I think that's pretty awesome that, you know, to your point as, uh, you know, at something with all due respect to the, you know, organization, I mean, most people think of WD-40 as having something fairly prosaic and mundane, but they have built tribes and they've built a customer base that, you know, tell stories around it. I mean, it's a storytelling experiential product, um, believe it or not. And the employees are jazzed and, you know, because they're jazzed and because they live this culture where it doesn't matter again, whether you're an entry level person or a direct report to Gary, the CEO, that they are there with the purpose of helping each other be successful. And it's a whole radical concept that I think we need to embrace today in venture, in business that, you know, compassion and competition are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist. And in fact, when they coexist, that's when you get the highest levels of uh, productivity. That's when, you know, people can really uh, soar and get to um, heights that they couldn't believe they can get to before. Okay, that's cool. So, well, now let's get right into it. So goodness, you know, I want it. And so starting with myself, you know, an an individual who wants to 
be better or have more goodness. What are some of your key findings in terms of how that is built up? Well, there's really three cornerstone values that people have to think about daily. And um, they're around the following items. One is truth. Uh, The foundation of goodness is truth. And truth really means do I have a level of humility when I go into work? Do I feel uh, self-aware? And ultimately, do I act with integrity? Meaning, do I have a level of self-congruence in doing what I say, in saying what I think, in thinking what I feel, and understanding that how I feel is who I am? So that foundation of truth is where everything starts. With truth, you have a capacity to be compassionate. And compassion is having a sense of openness. It is about practicing empathy and and generosity and having acts of kindness. And with those two things of truth and compassion, um, ultimately you get to that pinnacle value of wholeness. Um, you know, that the sense of wholeness is that I actually have love and respect and wisdom in what I do and, and from the people around me. And on each of these levels of truth, compassion, wholeness, there are a number of tools and a number of very practical methods that people can check themselves each day to see if they are um, actually consistently practicing the cultivation of their character and values. Well, yes, please share with us a couple of these most insightful checks on each of the three dimensions. Well, the simplest one on on self-awareness is what Benjamin Franklin did for years. I mean, he kept a, a diary across 13 virtues he was pursuing. And I doubt any of us would have that level of Franklin diary discipline. But I do believe that consistently codifying and writing down each day, um, what are the things that you um, sought to do in terms of you know, did I act with a level of compassion? Did I have um, truth in my activities? Um, is a very, very powerful way. The act of journaling is a very, very powerful way to create greater self awareness. Um, another practical way to be self aware, we, we all tend to know a, a weakness or two that we have. Um, you know, sometimes someone might just naturally be inclined to be a, a topper, meaning that in um, listening to people's comments that they just want to uh, top their story up. And a very easy way to be self-aware is to have a colleague or a friend just call you out on that in a meeting and say to them, hey, look, I want to get better. Um, I'm going to ask you as a friend just to call me out each time I do that. So those are a couple under the the truth bucket. The Probably the one that has um, really inspired me and that I use most often in the compassionate bucket is what I call the, the rule of 24 times three. And it, it really is about how you maintain a mindset of openness or optimism. And what we are is creatures of being human is that as we're gaining experience and wisdom, we tend to also become increasingly cynical uh, and critical of other people's ideas. So the idea behind the 24 by three rule uh, was taught by a mentor of mine, uh, Jay Chiat, who always um, had a, a capacity to see the goodness in anyone's idea. So here's how it works. The next time you hear an idea from a colleague or, or a friend, can you wait 24 seconds before critiquing it uh, in any way, shape, or form? And if you can wait 24 seconds, 
can you actually pause for 24 minutes to think about the positive attributes about it? And if you get past 24 minutes, is it possible for you to think for the next 24 hours all the reasons why that idea might work um, before allowing yourself to think about any reason why it will not work? And and that 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 simple framing of, you know, 24 seconds, 24 minutes, 24 hours allows you to have an introspection, be more compassionate to other people's ideas. It allows us to be more empathetic, empathetic in our listening and our mutual respect of other people, all of which are, are you know, um, the underlying uh, sub qualities that drive um, a, for a, um, a, a compassionate character. Oh, I really like that. And we had a guest mention the concept of forness, like the noun form of I am for that, yeah. and how that could be just so tremendously helpful is to cultivate that forness because you can sort of be changed, be transformed and receive different folks' perspectives and allow them to grow and improve as opposed to, I think you're right, there is often a, I don't know if it's defensiveness or a need to feel like, you know, we're valuable and worthy and have more brilliance than the next guy or gal. But many people do seem to have a natural tendency to want to leap out of the gate saying why something won't work. Yeah. And I don't know what psychologically is behind that. Maybe numerous matters, but it seems to almost be the default position amongst teams at times. Yeah, I, I just tell people, look, there's a fairly easy way to be happier at work is just be an energy giver over an energy taker. And, uh, you, you know, you actually find when you uh, give that simple level of foreness, of, of, of optimism, of openness, um, just just a pause before you critique people, um, you will find great energy coming back to you. You'll find greater collaboration and you will develop stronger as a as a person and leader um, in your organization because you will gain respect um, not because you're just um, going to listen and take every idea, but because people think that you are actually going to listen, that you are a person for advancement, that you have humility, and um, you know pe- people want um, energy givers. I mean, you know, you, you've been to those parties where there's the people that just suck the oxygen out of the room and others that just, you know, try to, um, inspire, uh, uh, just a little bit more positivity to today. Mm-hmm. Certainly. All right. So now I'm curious to hear how it's possible to what extent is it possible kind of on the front end to kind of discern who has much goodness, you know, up front. And I'm thinking if you're hiring somebody, You'd love for them to start off with a nice level of baseline goodness or even going to date somebody or choose a tenant if you own a, a property. Like what are some telltale signs or indicators or tests that you might use to see, hey, to what extent does someone really seem to be exhibiting a virtue and character? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think that, you know, so often when we are doing these interviews, we tend to go out with these very prosaic and questions of, of futility, such as what is your greatest weakness? And when you are asking that type of question, you are left with probably only one of three rehearsed answers. You know, oh, I work too hard. Mm-hmm. I'm too detail oriented or what I call the hallmark card of them all. I care too much, Yeah, you know, and there's really no value in that. And so what you're trying to do is crack that nut where character and values tend to be 
revealed longitudinally. So how do you reveal them up front? And part of what you need to do is break free from a normal interview process, a normal Q&A process. Um, one of the best ways to do this, as my business partner who was um, executive chairman of Chipotle uh, for many years and has built several businesses, he said probably the best way he has gotten that up front is not just go and spend time, say over a dinner with someone like you would if you're doing a date, but at your earliest possibility, cook a dinner with someone. Okay. Cook a dinner with someone because when you cook a dinner with someone, you you reveal things um, that people are in a different state of mind. That's one exercise. Another one is, you know, here's a couple of questions that will uh, be helpful. Ask or try to elicit from them what are the one or two traits from their parents that they would want to keep for themselves forever? That's a very, very powerful question. Another one is when you're speaking to someone is understand that when you're trying to discern character initially, people are programmed, especially if you're in that position of interviewing someone to give a rehearsed answer. So um, the first response is often not the best one. Just ask, say, tell me more. Tell me more. And if you could just be patient and listen and try to be more experiential you learn a lot. Some of the other extremes I have um, heard that um, people do is um, they'll go see how someone, you know, treated the receptionist or or security guard. But putting all of those things aside, um, you know, Pete, what I often just tell people, reflect after you meet someone around the following. Do you believe just on your gut instinct that this is a person where you could feel a level of collegial affection, respect, and pride. Affection, respect, and pride. And, you know, that's almost the most important thing you can ask yourself um, in any early relationship cultivation. And if you don't do that, you're likely to be set up for failure. Many audience members probably have a mentor of some sort. Well, mentorship never, ever works if it doesn't begin with the foundation of a relationship. So to make that work, just ask yourself when you're considering a mentor-mentee relationship that you may want to cultivate, do you feel a sense of authentic collegial affection, respect, and pride you know, around this person? And that'll take you very, very far if you just ask that up front. And I'm intrigued when you say you're basically consulting your gut and what you say, affection, respect, and pride. You know, I'd like to get your sense, you know, sort of deep inside your internal dialogue, Tony. What does it sound like when you ask yourself this question, you're consulting your gut and you hear a positive response or a negative response? Are you kind of imagining yourself in certain contexts and them embarrassing you? Yeah. Or you going, yeah, this guy rocks. Or what does sort of that internal dialogue sound like for you? So, yeah, you and I have both worked in the consulting world. So collegial affection, one of the thought experiments put forth often when you're interviewing for new consultants or analysts, as you ask, like, you know, it's the classic airport test. If you're stuck in an airport um, over a storm, would you be loving it and saying, yeah, man, let's grab a beer. What a great opportunity. Or would you be looking to shoot yourself or find a motel to get as far away as possible? Would you ever enjoy taking a long car ride 
with this person, like that collegial affection, you know, it's like mentorship or any relationship. Do you feel some level of chemistry? I mean, we're not asking you to be in love with a person, but you are asking, you know, do you feel some intuitive internal chemistry with the person? Um, on respect, you know, that's looking at competency and character. And do you feel that this person is going to respect the type of work you're doing? Do you feel they're going to be a good listener? Do you think you're going to respect their work and their point of view? You know, you're, you're pushing to get a point of view and seeing how they approach that. One of the things I used to do when I had one of my first companies that required both having very creative design people and very strong business people was I would take the business people and I would like in an interview process, give them a box of Legos and say, build something out of this and try to communicate it to me and tell me the story creatively why you built that. And some people just think I'm nuts and walk away and not want to interview. Well, that told me a lot about whether they're going to be um, compatible and respectful in our culture. And in pride, I mean, that's, you know, I think you said it, imagine a context of taking the colleague home to your parents, much like you would uh, someone you might want to date. Are you going to be like, man, like this person's going to really represent, I'm going to feel like proud to bring this person home to mom and dad or my sisters over Thanksgiving, or it's going to be like, man, yeah, thank God I only have to see this person at work. So those are some of the contexts I try to remember, you know, you don't go through in my head. Okay, that's good. So I guess then it sounds like there maybe is not, which is probably realistic, sort of a wondrous question or indicator that is like, aha, you know, shocking or striking in its consistent accuracy so much as it's, you know, consult a number of these things. Or are there any sort of, secret tactics that we want to make sure to cover too? Well, the one that I did already mention, I have to give credit to Adam Bryant, who writes the corner office column for New York Times is, um, you know, what is that singular trait you would want to have from your mother or father and why? And you, you learn a lot about a person in that response, especially if you keep double clicking and say, tell me more. That would be the one that I think is uh, really important. Okay. And so then what might be some indicators that make you say fantastic versus, hmm, I don't know so much about this person? Yeah. Action versus reaction to a task. I mean, you throw out hypothetical situations um, that, you know, is this person likely to act or react, do you think? Um, another one is if I'm looking for someone more senior, you know, one of the things I do is instead of like saying, give me your references, I, I just say, well, just tell me about three people in your life that you've possibly impacted and developed and what will they say when, when I call them. And if someone, you know, again, whether you formally have had managerial responsibility or not, seeing how people respond to that question and how they have cultivated and developed people is really important and sometimes reaching out to them. As I mentioned earlier, we just have had a rule in many of our businesses, like if someone's just rude to the receptionist or security or, you know, a, a wait staff because of the nature of businesses we invest in and because of who we think we represent as a firm, we just tell them politely that, you know, um, appreciate you come in, but um, this may not be the right place for you and unless you can tell me a little bit about why you acted and comported yourself in that way. Understood. Yes. And I like the way you phrased that question that, that came up when we talked to 
Randy Street, what mm-hmm. will they say when we call them is good because it just sort of naturally gets a bit more honesty from them. Like, oh, they're going to call them. I better, <laughs> I better tell them what they're really going to hear. Exactly. But digging a little deeper on the singular value from parents question, I guess when I am imagining potential answers to this question, they all sound good. So what would be an example of something that causes some concern with regard to the answer to that question? People that can't really answer one. Okay, no no answer, all right? (laughs) There really isn't one. And I, I don't think it's either right or wrong. I think, again, I'm just looking if they have a perspective and, um, if it's um, really authentic in the response. So it's almost a tone. If something is too packaged or feels obsequious, you could read that. You want to hear the story, the authenticity, the honesty, the oral history, and not just something packaged of, you know, hard work. Yeah, okay. So it's as much how they answer it and the context and, you know, that they feel that they have been shaped by others before them to be the person that they are. Oh, perfect. Okay. So you're saying it's not just the quality, but how they tell a story and shows that they have indeed been shaped and formed. And if they give you something that's prepackaged or shallow, you know, that's telling you, oh, maybe you really haven't, you know, noticed and appreciated the impact that someone has had in raising and shaping you and your values. And if you can't get that from your parents or whoever, your guardian, whoever's like taking care of you, then, you know, you might have some hard time picking that up from colleagues. Yep. That's exactly right. Okay. Well, Tony, this is so much good stuff. Tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? The only final thought I would say is that I believe that we all have this capacity for goodness and even more so than that, a responsibility. So going back to that question of what singular trait you take from your parents, I think if we all could craft our story of wanting to imprint positivity onto others, if you just imagine that there might be 10 chapters in your life around 10 people that you will positively imprint values on. And ultimately that relationship will be one that is very reciprocal, that you will learn from each other. Who would those 10 people be? Who is the first person you would start with? How do you start today? And how do you have as an objective to be part of a commitment to pass on goodness to, you know, just 10 people over your, your lifetime and recognize that, you know, so much of that will be mirrored back onto you and help you, you know, be that much more of a better and more characterful person. Well, that is a powerful thought and weighty, you know, just to sit with and and reflect upon. So can you maybe give us a tip or two in terms of making a more deep or meaningful or impactful imprint of goodness on others when we're engaging with them? Yeah. I mean, first, the reason it's weighty and it's out there, it's because like, just first think about it. If you change 10 people, Pete, and they elected to change 10 other people and those 10 people elected to positively change 10 others. I mean, yes, it sounds weighty. It sounds ambitious. It sounds audacious, but that's how real big transformative change happens. And that's why we need to be much more in the business of being 
good people producing other good people or leaders producing other leaders rather than leaders creating followers. But turning that into something very practical, there are basically five questions you can keep in the back of your head when you're meeting someone and just trying to be helpful. And I think the first thing to ask someone is like, you know, what is it that you're really trying to accomplish? Like, you know, personally and professionally, what is your calling? What is your, what is your purpose? That's the first question. What is, what is it that you're really trying to do? You know, question two, well, what are you doing today that's really helping you get there? What is your superpower? What do you do naturally better than someone else that's helping you get there? What are the things advancing the ball forward? You know, three, what are the speed bumps that are preventing you from getting there that are slowing you down? Four, what do you think you're going to change over the next month, next year, tomorrow that will alter that path, accelerate it? you know, shave down those speed bumps. And ultimately, if you ask those four questions, what are you really trying to do, right? What are you doing well towards that? What's slowing you down? What are you going to change about it? Then you can end with that last question. And what can I do to help? You know, those five questions in that order or some variant thereof, I have found to be just a useful framing towards trying to understand what people are about and um, hopefully finding my own ways to help them in any small way possible. Mm, Excellent. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? (laughs) Well, there are many, but um, Eleanor Roosevelt has always said one that I have embraced, which is the, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And, um, that I find inspiring. And my business partner, Mats Lederhausen, has a variant off of that, which I have used now, which is believe more than you can so that you can more than you believe. And mm-hmm. I think we have to believe in the beauty of our dreams. And I think, um, you know, we have to stretch ourselves because um, there's just too many inspirational examples that have gone before us and whatever circumstances we or you're in out there. Um, you know, there've been many others in that or worse before. And so I try to believe more than I can so that I can more than I believe. Oh, right. Thank you. And can you share that's a favorite book as well? Oh, well, that's, that is, um, much, much tougher because there are just many, but you know, I alluded to Benjamin Franklin's diary, I think is uh, very, very um, powerful. And I think that many classic books on um, leadership in the business side from Jim Collins, uh, Good to Great, and almost anything that Buffett writes have been um, anchors of my thinking. And then outside of that, I'll I'll pick up almost any magazine and uh, that's my idiosyncrasy and read it cover to cover almost. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've always been known to carry two or three magazines around with me. It doesn't really matter. It's uh, I'm, I'm old school like that. <laughs> well, I've heard, science shows it's one of the best ways to relax is reading a magazine. You hit it spot on. I think it's my own form of uh, meditation. You asked earlier, how do you become more self-aware? I think uh, uh, gardening, washing dishes and flipping through magazines just put me in a different zone. So it's not officially a book, but 
it's reading material that uh, recenters me. Okay, cool. And how about a favorite tool? A favorite tool, physical or a framework tool? Oh, sure. A physical, a software tool, um, product or framework, something that you use often or you find helpful? Yeah. So one of the tools and frameworks I said, and I should have credited, I think, a combination of a couple of my mentors from uh, Sun Yensei, who was the people development person for McKinsey, Deepak Chopra, and my partner, Matt's Leaderhouse, and gave me that five-part mentoring framework. I, I used that very um, often as a tool. And uh, from a physical standpoint, I, I'm old school Boy Scout. I think a little pen knife always gets you out of a lot of trouble. All right. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that leads to effectiveness? Yeah. I think you always have to find some time as difficult as it is each day to recenter. And it doesn't have to be as new age as formal meditation. Um, but I do believe that, you know, meditation is very powerful. It's just not something that I am very good at or know how to practice well. But anything that can get you in that zone of recentering is um, essential. Uh, you know, whether you're, you're trying to just zone out in the shower, whether you're just washing dishes, whether you're, you know, going for a walk, flipping through a magazine, all of us need to um, recenter ourselves each day. And I found that no matter if you're at work trying to be a parent, some of the greatest uh, celebrities and athletes, uh, a few of which I've had the privilege of working with, I found that to be a commonality that people do. They just um, take time for time. And, you know, hitting your inner reset is important. And then, uh, you know, related to that, I mean, you only have one body and um, you have to treat it right and, you know, stay healthy. And that means, uh, you know, eating right. And, you know, the part I don't do as well is sleeping right. But, you know, I think those things matter and they matter probably more than we uh, give them credit to. Mm -hmm. And Tony, tell me, is there a particular nugget or piece that you share that seems to really connect and resonate with people? A Tony original quote that gets the job done? I don't know if it gets the job done, but I always have said that entrepreneurship in business and entrepreneurship in life is this tightrope between vulnerability and conviction. And I think that, you know, remembering that we're on this balancing act and not being afraid or ashamed that we may feel vulnerable and that at the same time need to have conviction in what we do it helps get the job done because it gives people permission to be scared. It gives people permission to understand that risk-taking is a euphemism for active vulnerability. And it gives people an understanding that they still, despite that, have to move forward and lead forward with a level of conviction and, you know, yeah, just get that job done. Mm -hmm. All right. And Tony, if folks want to learn more and get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah. So my Twitter feed is at Anthony Chan. Uh, my last name is pronounced C-H-A-N, but spelled T like Tom, J-A-N. And they can uh, go read either of my books at www.aboutgoodpeople.com or my first book, Heart Smarts, Guts and Luck, or finally uh, our website, cueball.com. Okay. Antonio, do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, my challenge is to find those 10 people and imprint goodness on them. Start today. All right. Well, Tony, 
Thank you so much for sharing this. It's been really cool to get a perspective from someone who, you know, venture capital and goodness combined has been a real treat. And I wish you tons of luck with your investments and your people in printing and, and all you're up to. And uh, thank you for all your awesomeness and for doing this great, great program. Really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be part of this episode. I don't know about you, but I got a real kick out of Tony talking about the WD-40 company and just how people love working there so much when it seems like such a mundane, I guess he used the word prosaic, you know, run-of-the-mill ordinary product. And yet folks are fired up. They are digging it. And I think that's just so cool that in some ways, it doesn't matter as much what specifically you're doing, but who you're doing it with and how you're doing it and why you're doing it, all that purpose and people stuff can just infuse an energy and a, a goodness, if you will, into the mix. So hope you were digging that as I was and some more. And again, if you'd like to check out the transcript or the links to items that we referenced here, that's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep200. And I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already to join us for our next guest. We are talking with Jennifer Moss. She's talking about resilience and hope and optimism and keeping that emotional stuff alive in the midst of a challenges, adversity, stresses, etc. So I hope to catch you then. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.